Welcome to the Mission Cleveland weekly podcast, encouragement and hope in a despairing world. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. So good to be back here in a service and worshiping the Lord together. Um, What a big difference tonight compared to last week, right? Like we had a snowstorm hitting us last week, and this week I feel like we could just go out and play on the playground. Um, Let's pray, and then I want to just offer some, some thoughts on this passage, this miracle passage of Jesus changing the water into wine. Lord, we, we come to you tonight and we recognize that you are always coming into our world. You're always coming into the room, so to speak. And so, Lord, uh, I just ask, Father, that for each of us here, that we would take note of what's going on in our hearts and our minds and recognize the movement of your spirit more profoundly as we grow, as we Uh, attempt to cling to you. Uh, Let us do that in the beauty of your presence, knowing that you are here. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and, uh, I can't even read my writing, outlook, sorry. Among a rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, although frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences develop slowly over a period of time. That's the Big book, if you have ever had anyone that you know, a family member, or you yourself have any exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's their literature, right? And so when that book was published in 1939, 
it became clear like all the stories that were being published in that book were like these kind of miracle stories, right, where someone would start to enter into the recovery process or something would happen and it would happen right away. And so it became clear to the publisher of this book that, you know, it doesn't happen that way for everyone. That, in fact, that most of our stories of transformation, most of our miracle stories happen slowly over a period of time. And I think it just speaks to this tendency that we have, we can have, to, to look for something big, right? To see kind of the miracle as the, the huge transformation. But what if instead of thinking about miracles as something rare or supernatural, I mean, they always are, they're supernatural. But what if we define miracles as every time God enters the space of our lives? I mean, it's way more accurate to think of those experiences as miracles. Every time God shows up in our life, that's a miracle. I think of my friends who have really struggled through like recurrent bouts of depression, just haven't seemed to make a lot of traction in that work or have lived their entire lives with anxiety. And they just have prayed for some kind of transformation or miracle. We have to remember that God shows up even in those spaces, even when it doesn't change completely. We still have the presence of God, even in those instances where we don't get what we really wanted to get. As AC said, we're in the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany is really marked by the light of Christ becoming more realized in the world, being manifest to us. And it's not just any light, we know, as John in his gospel writes in his prologue, the true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. The light that comes to us all. John says, in him was life, in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And as followers of Jesus, we know that the darkness will never overcome. The light will always be victorious. But here's the big twist to this. I, mean, I think there's a, the challenge that we know as human beings that the twist to this is that humanity doesn't always see the light. We miss it. We miss seeing the light of Christ as he enters the room. I mean, it seems in some ways so simple, doesn't it? Like if you're in a dark room and someone strikes a match, you're going to see it. But for whatever reason, we miss Christ when he comes in the room. I mean, there were three magi who saw the star, right? But only three. I wonder why it was only three. I mean, why do we miss the light of Christ, the light of God, as it pierces our world, as it enters into the space of our lives? We get mere hints of this. And I think maybe we, we respond with, at best, kind of an underdeveloped curiosity of Jesus. And in our gospel readings, I think we can see this. Each response, there's a few characters in this gospel reading tonight. Each of those characters kind of 
could, in a sense, I just want to interpret this passage in this way, at least for our, our reflection tonight, each of those characters may present a way we've responded to the light of Christ in our own lives, giving us a picture of maybe our own hearts in some way. Mary, as she comes to Jesus in Cana, she seems to be very preoccupied with the problem. Now, we know that Mary's relationship with Jesus is far more textured and, and, and profound than this one experience. But here she seems to be caught in that very human feature to avoid maybe something embarrassing. Jesus, do something about it. Jesus, can you fix this? What about the servants? They're faithful. They see the miracle that's happening around them, but the real transformation, the the part where the water gets changed to wine, that that real transformative aspect of the story, they just seem to be completely outside of that experience. Like they don't ever really taste the wine. The servants are just kind of doing what they're told. They're faithful but they don't really experience the new wine. And you've got the master of the feast. He's bewildered by this experience, the experience of Jesus. He's not like the servants. He actually does taste the wine, but he never seems to come around to like where this new wine really came from, like what was really going on. He's just kind of bewildered. He's scratching his head. He experiences Jesus, but it just leaves him with a lot of questions. And then the disciples, contrary to a lot of the other stories in the gospel, the disciples here, they actually seem to get it. I guess that gives us all hope in some way that we can get it sometimes. But they catch the point. They see the glory of God revealed in Christ, and the text says they believed in him. I just think there are a variety of ways we can find ourselves responding to the light of Jesus, a variety of ways. And I don't even mean to say tonight like some of those that I just went through are like good or bad. I'm not even trying to like put a value judgment on that. I'm just trying to say I think we probably all have something we can relate to in all of those experiences. We've probably all had some kind of experience in responding to Jesus, like all of those characters in this story. It's not right or wrong, good or bad. It's just an acknowledgement that as human beings, we're not always going to get what Jesus is doing. We're not always going to get it. I mean, do we go to him sometimes with our issues and just say, Jesus, can you fix this? Can you just make it better? And maybe we've been praying that prayer for years now, and, and sometimes like we just get tired of praying that prayer, and we just stop praying altogether, and we stop asking for Jesus to fix anything. We just get disillusioned, you know, unmet expectations over a while. Sometimes our experiences are more like the servants. We just do what we're told. We've learned to be obedient. We've learned to be faithful, and that's so great. There's a lot of beauty in that. But if we're honest, like, we just don't often experience Jesus. We're doing a lot. We're busy. But when was the last time we experienced the miraculous presence of Christ and said, there it is. Praise you, Jesus. We don't taste the new wine. 
Or sometimes we have these profound experiences with Jesus that just leave us confused or bewildered. We taste, but we really don't know where it comes from. We get the experience, but we just don't have the kind of the, the, the knowledge that accompanies it. Whereas the servants seem to kind of have the, the knowledge, but they don't get the experience. But I think God wants us to have the knowledge and the experience. He wants to bring both of those together. And the disciples got that, right? They got both the knowledge and experience. They saw the glory of God shine through. Is what we see in Jesus cultivating belief in the new world that he's bringing into our midst? I think there's a lot of reasons why maybe it doesn't. One of them, even like with this story, like it's a familiar story. Like we've probably all heard this story before. And it reminded me of just that kind of experience. If you've known someone for a long time, I think this can happen in our marriages sometimes. Like we just kind of lose the gleam, just lose the kind of the, the glistening, the, the shine of that relationship. And it's not on purpose, right? It just happens over time because you get to see this person every day and you wake up and you kind of go about your day and it's just familiar, just over and over and over. And you stop slowing down to ask, what's the pathway to intimacy? What's the pathway to this person's heart? And we just lose the gleam. What if instead of thinking about miracles, as I said earlier, as some supernatural rare experience, we define a miracle as every time God enters the space of our lives. The light of Christ is always, always, always moving into this world. God is always revealing himself to us. And really, the only explanation that I can come up with there is that God wants to be seen and experienced by us. He actually wants you and me to have some relationship where we know and experience him. God wants us to taste the new wine. I mean, it's cellar-quality wine, but it's not to be kept in a cellar. Over Christmas break, my wife Julie and I, we were watching the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, and I just have to admit, like, I've never seen this before, right? But we decided to watch it, and it's so, so good. But closer to the end of the war, it's a story of World War II, and um, the 101st Airborne Division, and uh, the battle in Europe. And closer to the end of the war, the 101st Airborne Division takes siege of Hitler's fortified retreat, the Eagle's Nest, I think it was called. And as they do, Major Winters discovers this Hitler's wine cellar. Basically, every kind of drink you could imagine is there, right? And then you've got um, Captain Nixon, who has this favorite scotch. I think it's like um, Vat 69 or something, if you've seen it, maybe, if you correct me if I'm wrong there. But he had Vat 69, this favorite scotch. He had it throughout the beginning of the war, but then there came a time in the war where he couldn't find it anymore. And admittedly, like Captain Nixon has some problems with alcohol in this miniseries. But it's after the war, it's at the end of the war that they find this, this, this cellar of wine, and, and, and 
no doubt VAT-69 is there. Like, it wasn't available during the war. It's only available now that the hardship of war is starting to cease. And it just points out this reality that I think we're getting a picture of here, too, in our passage tonight, is sometimes the best is yet to come. The best is saved for last. In our gospel, the master of the feast says to the bridegroom these words, you saved the best till now. I mean, just sit with those words this week. You saved the best till now. It's so easy for us to lose the gleam. We stop seeing the shine. We lose our hope. And how do we regain hope when we start to have trouble seeing or believing or hearing the light of Jesus as it comes in? How do we regain it? In John 10, we see Jesus reassuring us that we've been given the ability to see and hear. Jesus, as his followers, says to us who follow him, we know his voice. We know his voice. And I just think, I mean, I can put myself in this category too. Like for some of us, we just stop seeing God when he comes in the room. We just, we just don't see him. And he's here. And he's at the table. And he's with us when we go home. And he's with us when we're putting our kids to bed. And he's with us when we're studying. And like name an experience where God isn't going to, to move into that space with you. But we just don't see it. We lose the gleam. Well, I just want to say a couple of responses in, in terms of maybe how we might regain the gleam. And one of them is just using this passage tonight as a call for reflection. Asking ourselves, like, how am I experiencing the light of Christ? Are there times when I just get preoccupied with the problem and I'm just saying, Jesus, fix this, fix this, fix this. I mean, just kind of take some inventory of your prayer. What are you praying for? It's okay to pray that prayer, by the way. There's nothing wrong with crying out for help and asking Jesus to fix something. Am I serving Jesus and not really experiencing him? There are times when I just get dry, dusty. I put so much work into my work that I miss seeing God right in the midst of it. Or maybe has it become all about the experience? Just tasting, 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 and not knowing. So a call for reflection. But secondly, I think this passage is a call for hope. There's something about the familiar and the simple experiences of our lives that always hold something profound and miraculous. Like just the familiar movement of our day. In this story, Jesus takes the simple, basic substance of water and he transforms it into a treasured drink. Six stones of water. I think 
I don't know how we might do the math there, but, but I think it's like 180 gallons of wine, like um, 900 bottles of wine or something like that. It's a lot of wine. <laughs> That's a lot of wine that came from the simple substance of water. And if you're a, a, a money person, you know, and if you just think, you know, what, 30 bucks for a, a decent bottle of wine, you know, you're looking at close to $30,000, I guess, there that Jesus brings out of water. Pretty profound. And if you're somebody like me sometimes that can struggle with hope, I believe there's something here that speaks to the hope that, that may have been lost on us. And it's this, that Jesus takes the simple substances of our lives and he infuses his miracle presence into them. And so oftentimes, friends, like there's no hype. I don't think this story had a lot of hype. This was God's simple movement into something simple and transformative. I mean, it's surprising how simple it actually is. And I think this story really kind of gives us a window into who God actually is. That's the way that he works, not just in the first century, but now, today, in our lives. And the most profound point of this entire story, it isn't even really about good wine. It's that Jesus becomes the wine. That Jesus' life and his ministry, his movement toward the cross, and our movement toward the table. These are all part of one single story of God's radical love and his desire to save and redeem you and me, this world. So I just want to invite us as we come to the table tonight, can we pause in hope and let the Holy Spirit remind us that the best wine is coming. That lie that sometimes can capture our imagination and say, like, the best is behind. Like, I've already lived the best part of my life. Or, gosh, that was the best semester. It's not going to be like that anymore. Or, I'm a has-been. Or whatever those lies can be, can we pause and hope and say to ourselves, like, the best wine is coming, that Jesus is bringing the new wine. It's the best. It's coming. Redeemer of our simple and sometimes very complicated, confusing lives is coming in. And I'll just end with this, this quote. It's a prayer, although it's more like a poem. It's by the Jesuit priest, Teilhard de Chardin. And I just want to read, it's a longer prayer. I just want to read the first verse of that and the last verse. Here's the first verse. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Last verse, which I both love and am bothered by. And accept the anxiety of filling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I don't want to admit that I'm incomplete. I don't want to accept that suspense. But the new wine is coming. The light of Christ is coming in. And friends, we need 
this newness for our lives, for our church, for our families. And so let us together trust in the slow work of God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us at the Mission Cleveland next week.